we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. This radio show is hosted by Peter R. Bregan, MD. I, I always wish to go ahead and say MDDD. There's something about that I got that MD that I kind of want to poke in, in eyes and <laughs> and here's Ginger Bregan. If you fool much more, we'll restart this program. Okay, you're in control. This is Ginger Bregan. <laughs> I'm, hi, folks. And we are on the platform of AmericaOutloud.news. Our dear friend and compatriot Malcolm, who runs this organization, is much to be praised. And we do our columns here as well. And uh, we also have an amazing substack created by Ginger Bregan called Peter and Ginger Bregan Substack. You should search Ginger Bregan for Substack and that'll get you to the right one. Yes, that's definitely a good way to do it. And my Substack... Uh, and Peter has a, a holding place in his Substack <laughs> and it redirects you to the Ginger Bregan Substack. Substack. It's a long story, folks, but we both write on the Ginger and Peter Bregan Substack. Good. Now, today we're interviewing a gentleman, a, a, a 33-year-old man whose value I cannot even begin to estimate. His name is Dr. Yosef Witt Daring. Yosef, J-O-S-E-F, and Witt is W-I-T-T and Dash Daring, D-O-E-R-R-I-N-G. He's one of the few psychiatrists I know and love. He is an incredibly brave young man. I only recently became acquainted with him, and I have appeared on uh, his show. Um, and I'm just delighted, Yosef, to, to welcome you here to our show on America Out Loud. Hi. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Um, Yosef is uh, from Australia. I guess you were born and bred in Australia. Mm -hmm. And um, in uh, 19, in 2020, I'm going to kind of give a little detail more than I usually give. In 2020, he co-founded a private practice dedicated, listen to this folks, to assessing and treating patients suffering from adverse drug reactions. And he's now an expert in that field especially when it comes to serious withdrawal injuries, of which there are an infinite number in our field of psychiatry. He, like myself, does litigation related to psychiatric drug, industry, um, drug experience. I come at it, as he is a psychiatrist, a physician, he comes from within the establishment in a most remarkable way, and that may be one of the first things we we'll want to look at today. He was a medical officer at the Food and Drug Administration in the area of psychiatric drugs. He actually specialized in emergent adverse drug reactions, and he 
proposed various modifications, drug labeling. He had a really unique, he has really unique experience in this regard. And I come from doing the same thing, but from the outside with a pickaxe. So we come from <laughs> very different traditions. It's very interesting. Glad to get a good laugh out of Ginger. <laughs> and, pickaxe. And, and a giggle from Dr. Yosef Witteri. <laughs> He's worked in numerous pharmaceutical, in his words, numerous pharmaceutical companies and clinical research, drug safety positions. Folks, this almost always leads to making a ton of money and being completely co-opted. How this did not happen is a miracle that I would like to delve into uh, pretty quickly. He did a fellowship in drug development at Janssen, Janssen, by the way, uh, research and development is a substation on the way to hell. <laughs> Janssen is responsible for buying Harvard psychiatrists to invent the, the diagnosis of bipolar disorder in children so that Janssen could make a fortune pushing Risperdal. All this is very documented be really interesting to, to know actually, actually so if Joseph has actually heard about that. He got his medical degree back in Australia at the Queen's Medical School in Australia, but he did his psychiatry uh, before that at Baylor, an astounding den of corruption as are all great medical schools. Joseph Darren, welcome to Peter and Ginger's show on America Out Loud. It's it's a pleasure to be here and honor and abs and actually kind of like an honor as well, Peter. I mean, on my show and and maybe for your audience to hear. I mean, Peter was also an inspiration for me when I was feeling lost in my profession. So to be uh, here with you now means a lot. So thanks. Well, God bless you for that. That that means a huge amount to me. I've occasionally had experiences like fearful residents calling me and saying they were about to be fired for carrying around my book, Toxic Psychiatry, to see a member of the profession like yourself who survived it and gone on to do something I would have liked to have devoted myself to early on, much more than I have, which is um, helping patients withdraw. I do it, but not as such a big part of my life as you seem to be doing. So um, I really mm -hmm. appreciate you doing that. Mm -hmm. So why don't you take over and, and maybe, maybe talk to us just about your uh, your descent into hell and coming back? How did you do this? Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> where, where do where do I start? I I think a good place to start is why why did I even choose psychiatry? Right, you know. So uh, I th you know I I've always been interested in philosophy, so psychology, self help, any anything like that, and. That was kind of an interest for me for a very long time. And when I eventually ended up going into medical school, um, I had to decide what specialty I wanted to do. And I said, well, you know, there's this thing called psychiatry and isn't this great? You know, it dovetails nicely with all of the, um, you know, the, the subject matter I'm really interested in, you know, philosophy, psychology, uh, you know, personal growth. And, and that's just great. And so I signed up for it very I guess, naively at the time, uh, thinking it would be about that. And it wasn't, you know, I, I meant, I remember going into my residency and, um, 
very quickly realizing, you know, we're not really uh, caring about at least what I was being taught, um, the caring about the psychology of what's going on. Everything was very kind of standardized, you know, just, you know, if they have these symptoms, they have major depressive disorder, and, you know, we're going to use these medications because there's clinical trials that show they're efficacious. And I think just from the beginning, something like that just seemed really off to me. Um, and I think actually intuitively it feels off to a lot of people when they encounter psychiatry, but, um, um, I guess over time people kind of fall in line and they just maybe rationalize it to themselves in a way that makes sense. But to me, it, it, something always seemed off about the way we were treating people in such a, um, almost like a factory assembly line type of way. I mean, there was absolutely no time at all to really understand our patients and figure out what was going on in their lives. You know, these were 25 minute visits and, um, I kept on thinking, you know, why are we doing this this way? This doesn't really seem like we're helping people. Um, and I just followed that. Um, and it got me in trouble in, in, in residency. People did not like the questions I was asking. I actually thought about quitting and, you know, finding people like Peter's Works and uh, other uh, psychiatrists out there that were fairly critical. It kind of um, gave me uh, courage to go on because I knew there was a community of other people out there who were just saying, hey, we're over medicating people and we're not really helping them. Um, and so I decided, you know, I'm not going to quit. I'm, I'm going to go make a difference. You know, I'm going to go to the FDA. I'm going to go and, and start informing people about the risks of these medications and that we shouldn't be just kind of giving them out without really understanding people. You know, we should be helping them in the way that we would want our loved ones to be helped, you know, really understanding them and giving them, um, the appropriate care. And so I went to the FDA and, you know, while I was there, I kind of learned about how they, how they research drug side effects. Um, and then I went to industry as well. So I could go there and learn about how they identify side effects and how they communicate them to the public. And kind of the whole time I was there, I mean, I was, I was going into this already very critical of uh, psychiatric medication. And so I kind of felt like an imposter um, in these places, but I was in there just with open eyes, wanting to kind of bring everything in and kind of learn. And eventually I simply got tired of living a lie is, is, is what I would say, you know, to, because to survive in these environments, you need to kind of just go along with the status quo. And usually that means just overhyping the benefits, diminishing the risks, same in the FDA that they're very captured by industry. And I couldn't do that anymore. Um, and so that's when I decided I needed to be fully independent and cut all industry ties and opened up the practice and also opened up a lot of social media channels. And I've been kind of very, um, publicly talking about the massive problems with the overprescription of these medications since. So that, that's kind of my, my trajectory, uh, in a nutshell. It takes so much courage. It takes so much courage to swim against the stream that way, Yosef. I, I have great admiration for you. I mean, um, it's, I was thinking about this this morning and it's like you either, I think you either care about the truth or you don't care about the truth. Because I, I, I look back at people in academia where I studied and, and these places and 
I think eventually they, they must realize what's going on isn't truthful. I mean, I think they rationalize it away and they say, well, this is just kind of what everyone does. This is normal. But I think to be comfortable there, you can't, you cannot, you, you don't, that's not your primary value, you know, truthfulness. And, and I think if you really care about the truth, I mean, you can't, you, I don't think you can survive in those environments. Yes. Yeah. This is such a key issue in life that, we don't talk about quite enough, even ourselves, <clears throat> even even Ginger and I. I mean, there is this desire to tell the truth that some people have, this desire to understand the truth, to figure out the truth, but it's really rare. And um, I was aware of this in high school. Uh, my best friend, I have no idea what's with whether he's alive now, Bruce was valedictorian of our class in high school, and and he he was a real truth seeker, and he was in some ways I think a lot smarter than me because he he really introduced me to actually thinking through an idea rather than accepting anybody else's opinion on it. And we both went to Harvard together. I mean, uh, from a from a school that never put anybody in the Ivy League. <laughs> He, he and I were roommates at Harvard, and we were always very interested in the truth. And it it actually, Bruce actually left the entire establishment, I think. I think he went off and he actually did did make make money in the early years of, uh, of computers way back then, uh, way ahead of his time on that. But rarely do we, we run into people who actually want to know the truth more than they want to defend their identity or their stability or their income or their, or their connection to community, the social relations. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think you've you... said it really, really well there. Cause, cause, cause that's what it is. I know because people will listen to this and they'll say, Hey, I, I, I care about the truth, but it's, it, there's, there's gotta be a hierarchy there because just like you both said, there's, there's things that people care about more than truth. Like Ginger mentioned, like, what will your colleagues think of you if yeah. you start saying things that they're that you know that that are against what the status quo is you know and maybe even critical of what they're doing are you willing to put your relationships with your colleagues in jeopardy um and uh you know risk your income risk your professorship your endowed chair uh all of these things that come along with uh, being tied up with the pharmaceutical industry and the money, which so much of the psychiatric leadership are, yeah, sure, they think they care about truth, but not at the, the expense of those things. I think also there's uh, a lack of confidence that comes into play so that an individual looks at at this idea that he or she has that is in opposition to the group he's in and thinks, well, but look at there's like, there's like mountains of studies and so forth. And this is all standardized and it's gone through all kinds of peer review and um, thousands and thousands of people embrace this perspective. Who am I to say that that's not the way it is? Am I really the little boy standing there saying the emperor has no clothes, you know, uh, it takes a lot of courage to, to trust one's own ability to evaluate the situation and then to actually express it and act upon that. Mm -hmm. I, 
I, I guess I would say probably Peter and I are, and and yourself, bro, uh, yourself, Ginger. We're hard-headed people because that I, <laughs> you know, you, I think you have <laughs> yes. to be kind of hard-headed to, to do that. You have to dig your heels in and and kind of be prepared for it. And you know, one of the things you, you know, you mentioned being the young boy kind of standing up against the Goliath, um, and I felt like that a lot of times, you know. Here I was in residency, and this is not that long ago. I know Peter mentioned my age. I'm an early career psychiatrist. So not that long ago, you know, I was a trainee and, a, and I'm sitting here in these classes with these um, professors of psychiatry and essentially this, you know, the, the, the it's just spin, you know, the, the industry had, you know, they had been so corrupted by the pharmaceutical ties that they were overhyping the benefits of the drug and, and ignoring the risks. And it took me, and I have to say for a long time, I actually did doubt myself because I'd sit there and say that, you know, this is not, you know, who am I to say this is this is wrong? And then it was only that the more I kind of thought about it and stuck with it and stayed curious that I realized what was going on, you know, that, you know, these professors that people look up to in these institutions, they don't get there because they're wiser than other people or they know more about psychiatry or they know more about helping people. They're there because they have ties to industry, um, because you need to generate publications to make it to the top of your profession. You know, you need to, you know, play ball and, you know, kind of go along with all of the other leadership in these institutions that do the same thing. Um, And so I think that can be really confusing for a lot of junior doctors when they see, oh, you know, this guy's a professor of psychiatry at this institution and, you know, they're all into clinical trials. They must know something I don't, but it's, it's kind of a scam, you know. They 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 don't know more more about helping people than others do. They're just kind of in this racket with the drug industry where they help each other out to get to these positions. Um, it took me a while to see that, but it's 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 a disaster. I think it happens all over the place. Yes, when you were talking about how you were reading or how you were interested in self help and philosophy and psychology and things like that. Um, one of the things I like to tell the world is that if you're a person who's read a little psychology, not necessarily a lot, but some good psychology, and particularly some good self-help books, and you've thought about philosophy a bit, human relations, you are already way ahead of the psychiatrist you're going to. Because psychiatrists can't do that. It undermines completely everything they're doing. And you're, you're a good example of having got started that way and then you began to doubt yourself some, but eventually you came back to, to what you had learned just simply by looking at humanity. So mm-hmm. there's, there is no authority inside psychiatry of any meaning. It's just all power, folks. And a power that's very grim and grisly, a power that likes to drug people into submission so that when you come to them and you say you're angry or, or you're, you're in a really in trouble or you're be rift or you're miserable what they really want to do is stop you that's what they want to do they want to shut you down mm-hmm. behind psychiatry i believe is a hatred of other human beings there is no way on earth that these people could continue without that we'll come back in a few min- moments <laughs> to talking with joseph Whitdering. this is peter bregan with ginger bregan 
Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill, it's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. And we're back with our guest, Dr. Joseph, Joseph Witt During. A mere 33 years old in the profession of psychiatry. And a hero. And a hero. Working with uh, patients with, who have severe withdrawal injuries and withdrawal issues and uh, psychiatric drug overexposure. You know, looking back at my own my own career, Yosef, I actually was confronting the psychiatrists in medical school, the shock doctors and other people. And it's only in recent years that I've realized that the only reason I did could do that was that the dean of the medical school, a, ma a man named Coy, Coy um, agreed with me. He agreed with me when the psychiatrist would would say something about me negative, he would smile because he agreed with me. And he protected me through that process. That's the only reason that I... Yeah, I got to say, I, I didn't have any of any of that. I mean, I had some professors that were happy to help me write some papers with them. And I was grateful for that, you know, papers on drug safety. But I mean, I was getting in trouble. I was getting sent to professionalism things because they you know, they don't like it if you disagree with them. You know, mm -hmm. you're you're difficult. You're not a team player. Yeah. And so I had to kind of learn to not do that, you know. And so, I mean, this is one of the things that hurts me in my heart, you know, was the, the, the number of years I had to kind of be inauthentic in, you know, how I had to practice to get through it. Um, and uh, it, it was survival. You know, you, you have to do things you don't... Um, you know, uh, to, to, to make it through. And so, man, I wish I had someone who I could have said, you know, this person, uh, really had my back during training, but it's, um, I, I just had to get it done so I could be independent and, and, and go on and do my thing. And thank goodness you did. Yeah. What was the scariest or most threatening thing you had to overcome if you're comfortable talking about? 
I mean, essentially just getting strikes. Um, you know, if you get too many strikes, you can get put on suspension during your training program. And I had a couple of them and, and, you know, things would come out, um, you know, when, when, when you're a frustrating person to work with, and I think I was for many of these attendings because of the things that I was saying. Yeah. 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 They, they, you know, they, they don't normally come at you in terms of like, oh, I disagree with what he's saying about medical care. You know, they'll start saying you, you know, lack professional boundaries, things like that. And so they try and just sort of smear you with other things. Yes. Ad hominem um, attacks. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that happened repeatedly. Um, and, um, you know, I, I just caved in eventually. I was just like, I cannot keep on talking about this stuff because if, if I do, I, I'm going to be kind of out and so um i mean that's it's 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 terrible i mean it kind of hurts to even think about and talk about now that that's you know what what they do because i mean it's i'm, I'm going to segue into something that's going to sound kind of crazy now well it's it, probably not to you peter and i'm going to give you credit for this you mentioned that you talked about psychiatry's role in the holocaust and you made me think a lot about that since um since we talked on my channel and uh, you know i was looking back and i was thinking about a book ordinary men which i went and i kind of flipped through you know they they, they talk about how you get people to do terrible things and it, it, it all comes back to this idea of um you know they they don't care about the truth you know they're kind of perverted by other influences and then they care more about fitting in with their tribe or their group of people than than they do about the truth, and I think in under those circumstances, I, I mean, you can ostracize and marginalize people that go against the grain. You can do great harm to people. I mean, there's it's this there's this terrible group, you know this you know this group psychosis, this strange mentality that's going on within psychiatry where people don't even realize, you know, what what they're doing and, and how harmful it is. And it does. I do think the Holocaust is, and what happened there is, I think there's similar dynamics happening at the moment. It's it's dreadful. Yes, we're writing about that right now um, in a number of different different ways. Um, <clears throat> psychiatry was the cutting edge of uh, of how the Holocaust took place, so, and um, the. Uh, the uh, the role of psychiatry in the Holocaust, if you put that on our website, bregan.com, and search the role of psychiatry in the Holocaust, you'll get to our my paper that I wrote years ago and, and eventually gave in uh, in Germany uh, at the first and only conference on medicine in the Third Reich. Uh, many people think we couldn't have had this Holocaust, folks, without psychiatry first organizing a mass murder, showing you could have six killing centers around the country and ship people to them and gas them. Uh, we use uh, that you could lead them into fake showers with fake sho- soap and instead they're hooked up to, the, in this case, the, the early stages of the exhaust trucks that uh, would then, then poison them to death. And these were the psych- so-called psychiatric patients. These, are, these were the inmates of psychiatric state mental hospitals, most of them. And they practically emptied their state mental hospital system, their own patients. They killed them all. They're psychiatric. Yeah. Then they kept bringing in new ones to kill. 
and that this set a precedent in a very deep way. You know, that's another example of why diagnosis is so dangerous exactly. and so important to recognize as the first step toward labeling a person as other, if you will, less than human in some way, which then leads to being able to do abusive things, including over drugging and various yeah. other uh, and and right on up to uh, in Nazi Germany to murdering the mental yeah. patients. Yeah, this is this is why when um, we started to hear about mass psychosis and mass formation, that uh, that human beings during the COVID had gotten together and self hypnotized themselves and brought on them brought on to themselves. The uh, the dictatorship, the totalitarianism that kind of took over during, during when we COVID-19. heard this, yeah, when we heard this propaganda, this this yeah. concept and, being promoted, and uh, first it was Desmet, uh, Matthias Desmet, writing a book and giving lectures about uh, this this mass formation, and then Robert Malone, who had no background in this area whatsoever, uh, a virologist, came into our group and started talking about mass psychosis and. Ginger and I stood up to that. We wrote a series of articles, critical, mostly of Desmet and then of Malone's use of mass psychosis, because whether Malone has any idea of the history, probably had no idea of the history of all this. Yeah, I don't know that he would have himself gotten into this. There's nothing he's ever had needing to do with intellectually. But the concept of a mass psychosis that you could then begin identifying people who uh, were behaving in ways that you wanted to do something about. And in particular, Desmond was applying this mass psychosis theory to people who were critical of, uh, of, of the elite. It was directly elite, uh, linked to don't be critical of the elite. They're not doing this. And uh, it's the mass of people who do it. And, uh, and of course, that led to the $25 million lawsuit against us by Malone. And uh, that finally led a few weeks ago to the judge throwing it out of court and now uh, threatening to make Malone pay uh, the Breggans and Jane Ruby, whom he was suing for their legal costs. I will wait to hear about. But I don't often talk about it. I don't like to give Malone a lot of airtime. But um, it fits into here so much when you bring up Ginger, this the deadliness of diagnosis well and that leads to all of the potential for abuse uh, and and I, I know uh Joseph that you've seen that in, in regards to psychiatry uh and mm-hmm. and it leads to all kinds of liberties taking liberties about controlling other people when you label them in such a way that makes them uh that identifies them as needing uh authoritarian interference so it's it's a very dangerous and it's a very it's it's such a potentially such a responsibility for uh, a physician or some other professional to do that and it's not respected as the power um as, as as the kind of authority and power that it really gives to individuals yeah, this is uh, yeah. Some, yeah. Go ahead, Joseph. I was going to say, and I, and I I want your feedback on this because it's I think I think about what's happening in America and around the world in psychiatry and 
often the question I, I have is like, why are we hurting people when they come to see us? Why are we over-medicating them, not, not really listening to them, understanding their problems and guiding them in good ways? And, you know, I think in the past, um, and I'll keep the, the metaphor with the, with the Nazi Germany thing going on, you know, when back then, you know, with all of the extermination of the mentally ill, it was, I think it was done through eugenics and it was coming through uh, politically and but when I look at the US and what's going on, I see the influences of the drug industry clearly. You know, the drug industry is going to overhype the benefits of the medications and n- neglect their harms. And they and they publish and so they they take over the medical literature. But then there's also this issue happening with um um, you know, private equity kind of buying up all of the <laughs> you know, the um, the hospitals and the outpatient clinics and they try and streamline things and you have these short visits where now you can use these diagnoses, you know, these short ones. Oh, this person has major depressive disorder. You don't really even need to understand much more about that because now you have a drug and, you, you know, have an indication for the drug. And so when you have that, it, uh, it almost seems like, I mean, that it, it just brings out the worst in, in, in the care. It's just this kind of this, you know, production line medicine that has been completely driven by, um, uh, by, by commercial incentives. Um, and then we have the doctors who work in this system who have taken an oath to the patients who seem to be totally okay with it. You know, they're just going along with it. Um, and so, I guess what I'd want to know what you think about that. I mean, Peter, I, I talked a lot about commercial, how the, the, these, you know, the commercial, the commercial side of it has so influenced doctors. What else is in there? I mean, does that jive with what you see or is, or are there other things in there that are driving this, this abysmal patient care within psychiatry? Well, Ginger and I, of course, have thought about this for a long time. Um, I did reform work for 20 plus years before Ginger got together, and we've been together now 40 years. And very early on, Ginger began thinking that the psychiatric oppression that I was dealing with was the cutting edge of something else. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) And Ginger comes from a Christian viewpoint. I come from a Judeo-Christian viewpoint. I'm Jewish. Um, And... It appears, you know, when you look at the world, there has always been this uh, battle between essentially what is good and essentially what is evil. And that there is uh, a, a value system of treasuring human beings, which some people adhere to, which uh, God has portrayed in the Bibles, um, seems at times to adhere to um that that says we should really treat one another um in god's image as, and as uh, fellow beings but that this has been a very hard concept for humanity outside of the family and i think that a great deal of what we're seeing historically anthropologically is what happened when we began civilization. I mean, this is very broad analysis, but this is what we're thinking a lot about, that when we were hunter-gatherers, 
you know, we were in small groups. I mean, two, three people could survive during hunter-gathering times with difficulty, but they could do it. Everybody made their own clothing. Everybody, no mass production there, no machines. Everybody made their own weapons um, and uh, pretty much uh, their own decisions in their own small groups, maybe with the encouragement of somebody that they allowed to be leader, was selected to be leader, maybe a grandfather, maybe a good hunter. But it was uh, people who knew each other and cared about each other. It was men who would go out on a hunt to kill an animal that weighed more than all of them put together in order to bring back food to the family and divide it among everybody in the group. Nobody starved in the group, even if they didn't have a man to hunt for him or whatever, or women to gather for him. But once we got into civilization, boy, it, it was Adam and Eve from the start. It was from the start, people beginning to really try to dominate one another. Adam and Eve after they left the garden. Of after Eden. they left the garden. <laughs> and then the first family, of course, is, uh, you know, that one brother kills another brother. And um, as a start. So... It looks like that human beings in groups lose their sense of attachment, their sense of caring that's in the family. And I do think that uh, even though I'm Jewish, I do think Jesus was the first one to come along and announce, listen, you're supposed to love one another as I love you and God loves you. That's it. You know, that's the basic, folks. I mean, that was a. That was in the face of what we saw in civilization, because at the time, all we had were empires, enslaving people, killing people, fighting with each other. By the time of the birth of Christ, the world was divided in empires. Indeed, by the time of Exodus, it wasn't just the Egyptian empire. There were empires everywhere. And... Uh, and people being dominated and enslaved everywhere. So I think there's, there's this awful history that evolves during civilization. And technology has just made it easier to make it look like it's acceptable to dominate. I think that's a really important aspect of it, um, the technology of psychiatry. It makes it entirely possible to have a global empire. Well, it, that too, yes. Yeah. But I'm thinking within the arena of psychiatry, oh. it's all very clean. There's an injection. There's a clean bed that you put someone in, at least. So the surface of it looks very modern and sophisticated and maybe even kind. Yeah, well, it, it masquerades. Well, you know, you, uh, the German murder program didn't allow Jews in because it was euthanasia. It was supposed to be a kindness. <laughs> Wow. The Jews didn't start getting killed until a little bit later. Oh, my God. We're down to 48 seconds here. We have one more segment. And we have one more segment. I I'm, I do did know that. Oh, good. As much as I got involved in thinking about it was. <laughs> God bless yeah. you. Joseph Whitdaring is our guest. We've got a little left out here. Amazing young psychiatrist. Amazing man. Never mind young. Oh, God. Just an amazing man. We'll get back to him in a few seconds. the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. America Out Loud dot news was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Welcome back to America Out Loud with Pulse. An extremely interesting conversation with uh, Joseph Whitdaring. He, uh, I'd like him to tell you a little more about himself right now, but he's a psychiatrist. He's board certified. He's... Uh, co-founded a private practice dedicated to helping people come off psych drugs and get over psychiatric adverse reactions. Would would you talk a bit about that, Yosef? Yeah. So, uh, you know what what we do is we aim to help people come off their medications in the least disruptive way possible and also we don't want them to develop something called protracted withdrawal which uh, is a very severe problem that happens typically when people come off antidepressants and benzodiazepines where if for some unlucky uh, folks if you put them into severe withdrawal by tapering them too quickly they essentially develop brain damage uh, they have the neurological symptoms that are just debilitating and can last for years. There's something not recognized um, much by mainstream um, psychiatrists, although we have a little bit of movement finally with the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK finally acknowledging this. But the the whole purpose of what I do is to give people an off-ramp from their medications in the safest way possible while ideally enabling them to continue to work and do everything they need to because the, the care is just so bad in community settings at the moment. People will get tapered off their meds in, you know, a couple of months and sometimes it's only a couple of weeks and um, it can just be devastating for people. So my wife and I, we started a practice and we've steadily grown and um, and that that's what we do full time now. Do you want to talk at all about your wife in this process? <clears throat> I'm always talking about my wife. You know, I can give you permission to talk yes. about your wife. <laughs> so, so my wife is a psychiatrist, and um, we actually met interviewing for our medical internship. Um, we hit it off, became friends, and then a year later we started dating. And uh, she, you know, she's probably one of the main reasons I made it this far as well. Because when you feel like you're crazy and none of your colleagues kind of agree with you. To have someone there with you who's saying, hey, what you're saying isn't crazy. I feel the same way. Uh, she kind of kept me going in many ways. And so um, eventually when we wanted to do this together, we 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 said, yeah, let, we're going to do it. And, you know, I have a daughter now and, and, and all of that. And so my wife stepped back from clinical care a little bit, is more running the practice and um, and, and such. But um, 
yeah, we're, we're, we're a team um, and uh, kind of running the show together. That's wonderful. That can make all the yeah. difference, I think. Uh, it, it's it's much more than uh, one plus one equaling two. It, it's really a multiplication of one's ability to affect change. I think if you've got someone whom, whom you're partnered with who's really right on the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. think I'm really with you on the... Um... You know, you mentioned that sometimes they take people off just in weeks. Actually, a lot of these guys do it very, very mean fashion. They take you off immediately when you say you don't want your medications, and then you collapse into into uh, near psychosis or psychosis. I mean, your brain is just totally unaccustomed and not being drugged. It's been fighting the drugs for years, and they they just do you overnight, and then they slap you right back on and numb you again, and uh, you're lost. Um, one of the principles that I want to share, and I'm, I'm sure you have your own version of this, I tell my my patients, first, I prefer to call them clients, so this is a cooperative partnership, that for the first time, perhaps, they're going to be working with a physician who actually wants them to feel in control of what's going on. And that the entire, I reassure them that the entire withdrawal will not go faster than they want. The only exception to this might be where somebody has and doesn't realize it, a, a severe serotonin syndrome or overwhelming tardive dyskinesia. And I think they really do need maybe to we'll try to find some place, some hospital where they'll take her off the meds or we'll try to. But say, except for real emergency, and, and I haven't had one of those in years, um, we go relatively slow based on the tolerance of my patient or client. And that principle, some people go much faster than others, some go slower than others. And on top of that, there's another really simple principle that I like to share with people, which is if you're going slow enough, the moment you get really uncomfortable, all you have to do is go back up to the previous dose, not to the original dose, but the previous. So if you've come you know, off of uh, 40 milligrams of or 20 milligrams of uh, Selexa or uh, Lexapro or some other medication, and uh, you've, you've come down uh, 10 milligrams and so you're not, you're not feeling really good, you maybe go back up to three, four or five milligrams and you might feel good again, you'll know it's withdrawal. So this combination of simple principles has really helped me uh, pretty much be successful in people not having sustained withdrawal problems. But the caveat is I'm not working as an outpatient doc with people who are on five drugs for 15 years and completely dependent on their families and are really in that kind of shape because we really need residential withdrawal systems for that. So that's kind of a summary of my principles. Make any sense? yeah, I mean, sounds sounds almost to a T what I do. Um, it's completely patient led. They're they're in control, and like you said, the only reason I would go faster if they had some severe adverse reaction from the drug that necessitated it. But otherwise, I just, um, I mean, what we do in our practice is that it's a one stop shop. So we give them the chance to do these slow tapers where I oversee them. 
And then we also couple it with psychotherapy. And so we have a lot of yes. coaches and they, um, they can, and we have groups as well. And so, I mean, a lot of people when they're coming off medications will go through different things. Sometimes they'll go through withdrawal and they do, and they want to talk about the insomnia that they're having, or maybe the pain that they're starting to experience as they're coming off the drugs. Um, other people, they may be waking up to their emotions for the first time in 15 years and are coming to terms with, oh my God, you know, I feel like I'm meeting my children for the first time. I haven't oh, really been so present common. in their life. Oh God, yeah. that's so sad, tragic, and common. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've interrupted you though. I was just thinking about one of my clients is going through that now, but oh my God, I wasn't connected to my children. Yeah, 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 you know, I have a, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about a woman who, who, who is now realizing, you know, for years of my life, you know, my kids would come up to me when I was at the computer working, and they would be saying things, and she would just think that she was really listening and think that she was really hearing their problems. And now that she's off, she's just noticing how much more present she is and how much more attuned she is to what's going on in her children's life and is kind of you know, mourning the, the fact that she couldn't have been there for them in the same way. And so this, you know, I have women as well who have lost the chance to have children because they, they came off the drugs and they got too quickly and they got hurt and it messed with their family planning because it happened right. You know, these are maybe women in their early thirties who thought they were going to be able to do it then. And so a, a lot of, a lot of the, 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 the clients that we help, they need, um, they need to go through the grieving. They need to to be supported through that. And so that that's what I think really helps um, is, you know, you need a doctor that can do the slow taper and let them be in control. And then you need the container to, to talk about what's happened to them and then help them come off. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm just so glad you're doing this. This is digital confirm. This was like an early dream of mine was to actually – get involved with organized withdrawal. And I even thought about it very recently and tried to uh, think about how to create a program with a, uh, but uh, it did not uh, turn out. Um, I'm just really glad that you are uh, developing a program. I don't think there's another like it in the world. It's very, very gratifying to hear about your program. And we are early days at the moment. The structure has changed a lot. Um, and we are trying to, it's a, it's a, it's, it's fun. You know, it's how do we get people down safely using the resources and the people that we have in an efficient way. And I hope that we can land on a model that could be used by other people, you know, after we, figure out the most operationally efficient way to do it. Um, because this is hard work, Peter. I don't need to tell it to you. Yeah. I mean, you're a, you, you know, you've are you been a, a one-man show, it sounds like, with a lot of people. I'm, I'm sure you know how um, time-intensive this work can be. So doing this at scale in any way really requires you to train people, divide the labor up well, and that's the part that makes me excited uh, now having done this for four years is, you know, we're growing and trying to scale up and help more people and we're, we're trying to figure out how to do it. Um, and we're talking a lot about, you know, we, we're all over social media on Twitter and YouTube and TikTok and 
hopefully people will be interested in what we're doing and they'll try and do similar programs and also be involved in this care and we can have more more practices pop up where where you know doctors are fed up with what's going on and they want to be involved in the solution yes i i think it's i think it's going to appeal a lot more to therapists and uh other thoughtful people than to physicians unfortunately that may end up being I, yeah go ahead yeah i was going to say there there is something that maybe i'm trying to be optimistic or i'm i'm hoping um but one thing i i'm hopeful of and i, I you, you may be aware of this the end the new drug application for mdma for ptsd went into the fda i think it was like last month so we should get a uh, a um a decision on whether they approve it and this may not i mean this may just seem oh another drug approval but to me it's not because with with something like a psychedelic treatment even if you're against drugs or you, you don't want to take them i think it's the mentality of how they're used which is interesting and i hope will have an impact because when you use psychedelic medicine for depression or anxiety, you're not taking a drug every day. You know, you're doing a whole series of psychotherapy to prepare someone for it. Then they take it, the therapist is there with them, and then they do multiple sessions afterwards where they sort of integrate, um, you know, the realizations from the um, from the trip experience. And I think that whole, um, that, that mentality of, you know, where we're going to treat this PTSD or this depression by understanding what's going on with the person and then helping them come to realizations during the therapy. I think it's completely different from what we do now where we say, Hey, you have, you just need to take this drug every day. And we don't really want to know much about what's going on. So I'm hoping this is a little wedge in the door for maybe a younger generation of doctors who are going to start to use these things and start thinking about depression and anxiety differently than the, very chemical model that that we have now and so yeah maybe i'm optimistic but i'm hoping that 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 may usher in a new way of thinking about these things um well it's hard for me to contain myself because i think it's a disaster i think that uh, it's a one more tool of modifying the brain and thinking that you must do something that is essentially destructive to your brain, which is to make it malfunction in bizarre ways as a part of a process of finding some sort of renewal. And that is was the whole principle of, of uh, gigantic efforts in the 60s to use drugs. People tried to do this personally and with coaches and with other people in the 60s. I'm afraid it's a gateway. It's just new pharmaceutical funding. It will, oh, I just think it's a potential disaster. Um, but I, 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 I wish luck to humanity, but I do not believe that disrupting brain function should ever be a, an approved way of trying to make progress with yourself. Now, there are certainly mm. people who have had an acid trip or a mushroom trip and have learned something new about themselves or about their ability to imagine or in ways they never thought they could imagine. 
but these are entirely spontaneous. They're not under the control of authority. Authority over people enhanced by messing their brain up is not something I approve of in any any way at all. So I'm I'm I just think it's one more misery to be inflicted upon people and to be used by authority in ways that will be ultimately dreadfully corrupting if it succeeds. Anything that the current FDA approves has to be nearly monstrous. This is the same FDA that in my early work never said a peep against lobotomy, which they could have. It uses instruments. They they had a whole section. The same FDA that when recently I finally, we got a judge to uh, really take a stand that my testimony could go to court on brain damage from ECT, where the company gave up and actually surrendered and changed its uh, its uh, labeling and everything in response to, to the, the inescapable threat that the jury would find them horribly uh, brain damaging people. The FDA immediately stepped in and approved electroshock for the first time in its history. Uh, no, I don't think there is a salvation in the FDA. I think it goes back to the earlier question. It was much too big that you asked me that I could barely begin to answer Ginger and I together, which is that the FDA is an arm of evil. It's in the pocket of billionaires. It's in the pocket of the World Health Organization, which goes back to the UN. It all goes back. It goes back to Bill Gates and it goes back to Xi Jinping of China. These are all methods of dehumanizing human beings. And in fact, the more I think about it, the more the model of giving a psychedelic drug to somebody and then doing therapy with them is akin to transhumanism, which is the cutting edge of how to control humanity by changing our brains. Oh, Joseph, it's so different than what you're thinking. But God bless you. I think you're wonderful. The part that's correct is connecting to uh, someone and working with someone, but then you introduce chemical or other kinds of disruptions and it perverts the relationship. It takes away their autonomy. But th that's right. And what we're finding is that the fundamental is protecting and enhancing individual autonomy is what helps people to thrive. Everything else tends to take away and yeah. injure them. But listen, we tremendously value your work, and I'm sorry we're out of time at this point. But folks, I urge you quickly in a couple of words, how do people get in touch with you and your program? Our uh, best way to get in touch with me, I think, is through YouTube. Um, if you go to Dr. Joseph, uh, Doc, uh, that's, that's where I'm going to be over there. And so that's J-O-S-E-F. Uh, clinic is taperclinic.com. Yes. God bless you with what you're doing. <laughs>